Though the religion of Jesus was the religion of the Old Testament, the official teachers of the Old Testament had so formalized and they had so externalized and perverted the Old Testament that they could not see the Christ of God when he was in their very midst. The tragic thing when religion obscures the way to Jesus. And it's still true that Jesus and biblical Christianity turns conventional religion and reason upside down. There's so much of genuine Christianity that is out of sorts with this world in which we live. It's eternally important that we learn that life in and with Christ is wonderfully different. It's eternally important that we realize that the old life with all of its mindset is incompatible with the new life that there is in Jesus Christ. That's the lesson that I want us to consider today as we meditate upon the text before us. In the immediate context, Jesus' behavior has been questioned by both his critics and even some of his friends. His sympathizers even wondered what he was doing as he went into the house of Levi. But his feasting with Levi raised the question then about fasting. And this question then gives us three different perspectives of what the newness of life in Christ is to be. So our main lesson today, again, is that life in and with Christ must be wonderfully different. It's incompatible with the old life. And so there are three truths that the Lord Jesus sets down before us here as to what this newness of life looks like. We learn, first of all, that a relationship with Christ is more important than religion. A relationship with Christ is more important than religion. The sad thing is that you can have a Christless religion. He gives the picture here, raises the question, I say, about fasting. Fasting was the most religious exercise. You know from the Old Testament that there was only one ordained fast, that God had instructed for his people. There were many feast days, times of celebration, times of special worship unto the Lord for his various acts, but only one fast day that God had ordained, and that was the Day of Atonement, a day in which they were to the Old Testament languages to afflict the soul, to afflict the soul, not to punish the body, not to deprive the body, but rather to feed the soul. And the fact that it was on the Day of Atonement teaches us a very important truth, I think, that this Old Testament fast was designed to bring their attention and to draw their attention to the coming Redeemer. But during the Old Testament even, there were various fasts that proliferated uh, for various reasons, particularly during the exile. You remember those emissaries that came to Zechariah 
now that the exile was over. And they asked Zechariah, what should we do about this fast, these fasts that we've had during this time as we have commemorated the fall of Jerusalem? What should we do now that the captivity is over? And Zechariah gives a very interesting answer. First of all, you know, God never told you to fast to begin with concerning this. This was all you're doing. And you might as well stop because it means nothing to God. Those were religious fasts. In the second part of the answer, he says, there are going to be greater things happening when the Lord comes in the fullness of his blessing, that there be no cause and no reason for fasting. We know from Luke uh, chapter 18 that the Pharisees were fasting at least twice a week. And it's very likely, it's very likely that while the Pharisees were fasting, that Jesus was here feasting in the house of Levi. And so that raised the question, what about these fasts? And even during the New Testament times, this pharisaical notion apparently had infiltrated the church as there were questions and there were judgments being made concerning someone's spirituality as to when they eat, what they would eat, when they would eat, when they would not eat. Uh, Didache, you familiar with Didache? Didache is a early church writing. It dates to about AD 100, about 10 years, about 10 years after the completion of the New Testament canon. And there's an interesting chapter in the Didache that deals with the issue of fasting. And keep in mind now that this is not but 10 years after the close of the New Testament canon. And they are questioning each other's spirituality on the basis of when, on what days, you fasted. They said, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites who fast on Mondays and Thursdays. That's hypocritical. You fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. And that would demonstrate the genuineness. But the point is that they had become so externalized that even judging the spirituality of others based upon what day of the week they would fast. It's a sad thing, I say, that man can take the very best of means and make it a worthless end. Fasting and any other religious act that is nothing but a perfunctory performance without a reference to Christ is worthless folly. But this issue caused Christ to bring this analogy. It says, can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Fasting is a time that is incongruous to the wedding time, Christ says. And it's impossible. Those of you that know Greek, you would understand that this is a question that anticipates that negative answer. You cannot make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? Of course not. It's incongruous. The very thought is incongruous to what the whole purpose of a wedding ought to be. When the bridegroom is there, it's a time of joy. It's a time of rejoicing, not a time for fasting. Even the rabbis, even the rabbis would set aside some of the uh, regulations for wedding days, a time of celebration, a time of celebration. Now that's the picture. 
All right, Christ is the great master teacher, isn't he? He can take and use the things of life to make such important spiritual points. So here's this analogy. During the wedding time, when the bridegroom is there present, you cannot, you cannot make them fast. This is a time of celebration. So the point, I think, becomes very clear for us. Christ is the bridegroom. His people are the sons of the bridal chamber here, part of this community. But it teaches us that the consciousness, the consciousness of the presence of Christ is what gives joy. The conscious presence of Christ is what gives joy. To be in his presence, to experience something of that personal relationship is joy. And that's something that religion by itself cannot achieve. That's a very sobering question. Very sobering reality. Is the felt presence of Christ your joy? Or can you be content without it? Can you be content without the experience, without knowing the reality of the presence of Christ? I think the most tragic scene that we have almost in the entire Bible is what you have in the Revelation there in the church of the Laodiceans church that was wealthy, a church that was doing everything right, a church that many ministers would be happy to be the pastor of, every, a, a wealthy church, orthodox. But there was that coldness, that lukewarmness. Okay, it's okay to be cold, you know. It's okay to be hot, but to be lukewarm. But they were there in the church, and they were just going through all of the motions. And I say the tragic scene is what you have there, Christ knocking at the door. Let me in. Let me in, and we'll fellowship together. Let me in, and we'll rejoice together. But the tragedy is that they were doing all of the church stuff on the inside, they were going through all the motions that was orthodox, was conservative, and in our day we would say conservatively reformed. Going through all the motions, it was good. But Christ was on the outside knocking to get in, and they didn't even know he was God. Just the ritual. Just the ritual. We can be engaged in the most conservative of religious practices, we can be engaged in the most conservative of religious forms and still miss the experience of the presence of Christ. And I think that is certainly a concern that we ought to be sensitive to here as we're in seminary. Day after day after day, uh, we're dealing with the issues of God's Word. We have the privilege day after day of discussing and considering the things that God has revealed to us in this precious book. But is it possible? Is it possible even in our seminary experience to go through all of the motions to learn the best things, to learn the conservative things, to learn how to exegete, to learn the church history, to learn all that stuff that 
We want you to learn and do it without that experience of the presence of Christ with you. I, I think the thing that I hate most about myself is that I can be engaged in the most spiritual of exercises, can be engaged in the most in-depth examination of God's Word, and it becomes such a, it's my job. It's my job. I'm getting paid to do this. It's my job. And we can be involved. I can be involved in that. And before I know it, before I know it, I'm more concerned about where you put a path act than I am about experiencing the presence of Christ. And can we get so involved? Can we get so involved in our analysis? Oh, this is rhetorical device here, and we try to... And we can get to all that nitty-gritty in examining the text and do it mechanically. We can do it mechanically without that experience of the felt presence of Christ. A relationship with Christ is more important than religion. Dare I say then that a relationship with Christ is more important than the years that you spend here in seminary. If all we can do, if all we can do is learn the technicality, and I, I, I love the technicalities. I, I love to get in, but, but our principal purpose in all that we do here is that we might come into a maturing experience, a maturing experience, of a spiritual relationship with Christ. A consciousness of his presence is reason for joy. But the awareness of missing Christ ought to be that which is sorrowful. And Christ says the day will come. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away and literally snatched away, perhaps a reference to the cross itself. The day will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away, snatched away. You'll fast in those days. When we become conscious that we are not experiencing Christ as we want to experience. When we're not enjoying him as we ought to be enjoying him. Indeed, there are reasons. There are reasons for fasting. This is not a prohibition against fasting. But it is a reminder that there are going to be times when we become conscious that we're not, that we need to set other stuff aside. Set other stuff aside. I would be happy even if you set your Hebrew aside to get into that spiritual relationship with the Lord. Fasting a time, I say, to afflict the soul. Will be time. When we set aside, oh, not to, to deprive the body. It's not a time just. To, and, and and I've known I, I've known Christians even that say, well, it's, it's going to be a fast day, and so they just all they do, all they do is don't eat, no prayer, no. So I'm I'm not going to eat today. So the Lord, no, 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 no. The fasting is not a time to deprive the body. It's a time to give that extra determination and that extra effort to seek the Lord, to seek the Lord. Eat something, but take your meal times to pray and to seek. The, there are going to be times I say yes when I hope we become so aware uh, that we're not experiencing and we're not enjoying that presence of Christ that we do everything we can do to seek. But the lesson is clear.
the lesson is clear that if we know the presence of Christ, if we can experience that presence of Christ, what a joyous thing that is. Now that's the first lesson that Christ teaches us. Beginning at verse 36, we have two more lessons. Now you'll notice, please, let me just say a word about the text and then we'll make the points. You'll notice that there are three no man statements. You see that in verse 36, no man. Verse 37, no man. And verse 39, no man. But also notice that in verses 36 and in 37, there is an else statement, if otherwise else, same Greek expression. But that does not occur in verse 39. So on the basis of that little structural observation, I'm going to put, I'm going to put the first two no man statements together, and then we'll reserve the final no man statement for our last point. But here Christ is speaking in parables. Familiar practices of life, everyday life, again, that convey spiritual truths. The parables are analogies to illustrate truth. They don't formulate truth, but they illustrate truth. And the Lord Jesus, as the master teacher, I say, was frequently looking at the stuff of life to make a spiritual lesson for his people. And so here are some spiritual lessons from these parables. So I put these first two no-man statements together. The lesson that Christ is teaching us here is that a relationship with Christ demands the renunciation of the old life. That a relationship with Christ demands the renunciation of the old life. The picture. The first picture. Nobody puts a new patch on an old garment. I'm not sure in the day in which we live that some can understand the significance of this statement. When I was growing up, if I had a hole worn in my blue jeans, my mother would put a patch on it, and she knew what she was doing. That patch would hide the rip. But today, you, there, there are actually people that buy jeans that are full of holes. It would drive my mother crazy. Uh, you buy jeans that are already full of holes. But, whatever. That did not exist in Jesus' day, all right? If you wore jeans in Jesus' day, you put patches on it if you had holes. But here's the point. You don't, put, you don't put a new patch on an old garment. And this is just common sense. This is just common sense. That old garment has already gone through the shrinking process. And if you put a new patch of cloth that have not been washed, hasn't been shrunken yet, uh, and you put that on the hole, then next time you wash, uh, it's going to separate. Uh, as the new patch now begins to shrink because of the washing, then it's going to be worse than it was. And Christ says, come on, nobody does this. This is just common sense. Nobody puts a new patch on an old Garment. It may look okay for a while. 
It may look okay for a while, but it's not going to last. It's not going to last. That's the first analogy that teaches this truth, but then he moves on to another analogy. No man puts new wine into old bottles or skins, or goat skins that were partly tanned anyway and sewn together almost whole. And uh, the wine, the new wine, would be put into those skins. And if the skins were old, having lost their elasticity as the new wine was put in there and began to do whatever wine does and the fermenting process and what it would cause the expansion and the breaking then of those skins. Nobody does that. Again, Christ is looking at something that is just flat out common sense. Nobody does that. Because if you do that, it's going to burst the skins, you're going to lose the skins, the bottles, and you're going to lose the wine as well. But the point is that some things just don't mix. Some things just don't mix. Some things just don't go together. And that's the point that Jesus is making. This is not a dispensational statement. I must say I get sick and sore of uh, times I hear this saying that this is showing that the Old Testament no longer is uh, appropriate. Christ is setting aside all the old. No, no, no. This has nothing to do with that. What Christ is teaching here comes to the very heart. It comes to the very essence of the gospel. That Christ is not and Christ will not simply be an add-on to the old life. He's not just a means of patching something up. It's the presence of Christ that is absolutely incompatible with this world. Christ is not a fix. And here's the folly. Here's the folly of mixing spiritual things with carnal things. To be in Christ is to be a new creation. Old things passed away, all things become new. Faith toward God, repentance from sin, the forsaking of the old. I say certainly this is not a setting aside of the Old Testament, but it is a demanding the setting aside and a renunciation of the old life. The newness of life in Christ demands the old life is renounced. But I say that Christ is not just an add-on. driving someplace one time and I saw a, a billboard and the billboard said Christ is the answer. It's all it was on. Christ is the answer. That's good. But the more I drove I started wondering what the question was. What was the question? Christ is the answer. And I think so often today Christ becomes the answer to all of our little bitty problems. And Christ becomes the solution to this or that problem. You have marriage problems? Hey, take a little Jesus. He'll fix your marriage problems. You have financial problems? Take a little Jesus. He'll fix your financial problems. You have health problems? Hey, take a little Jesus. He'll fix you. Jesus is not just a band-aid that we put on some wound. He's not just a fixer up of this problem or that problem that we have in life. A relationship with Christ demands, it demands that he commands all of life. Commands all of life. There's no part of our life, 
There's no part of our life that is not to be dictated and defined by the relationship that we have with Christ. Certainly it is, certainly uh, it, it involves the repentance from sin, and, and but it involves everything in life. You know, we play this priority game so often. All right, we play this priority game, we'll give God, you know, others. and No, it's... We, our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ permeates every other relationship, every other circumstance, every other event in life, including seminary life, including seminary life. When you're doing all of these papers, and I know some of my colleagues make you guys do a lot of work, right? Uh, but as you do that work, as you do that work, you do it as a spiritual exercise. Uh, if you've not read that article by, by Warfield, read it sometime. Uh, that makes all of our academic life a spiritual exercise uh, as we factor Christ in to the circumstances of life. But that's those first two no-man statements. That a relationship with Christ demands the renunciation of the old life. Come finally then to the Last no man statement. Point of lesson here is this. That a relationship with Christ requires a new nature. A relationship with Christ requires a new nature. No man having drunk the old wine straightway desireth the new. For he said the old is better picture's clear. Those who are used to the old wine have a preference for the old wine. There's a natural contentment. There's a natural contentment with the old wine. To prefer the new wine would be that which is contrary to nature. Contrary to what the norm would be. But that's the point. Natural man cannot understand the way of the cross. That's why those things that are so precious to us as believers are foolishness to the world. Why they're a stumbling block to others. All this religious stuff. And are we not as evangelical reformed Christians today? Are we not out of sorts with this old world? The stuff that we do and the stuff that we believe is crazy. In a few moments, you know, in a few moments, we're going to be going to prayer together. And we're going to have our eyes closed and we're going to be talking out loud to someone that we can't see. The world sees that and it's crazy. It makes no sense. But it takes a new nature, doesn't it? It takes a new nature. It takes a regenerated nature that puts all a different perspective on all of these things. The natural man cannot understand. But those things that are offensive to those, those things that are repulsive to the natural mind are precious to us. We desire the new. We desire the new. Not a natural response. But our contentment is not with the old. 
our contentment must be with the new because all things have been made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an interesting text. But the main focus that I trust that we can get in our meditations today is that we don't even allow our seminary routines that are good, they are good. And the stuff that you guys are learning is good stuff. But it's not a substitute. It is not a substitute for the enjoyment, for the spiritual enjoyment and experience of this relationship with Christ. Amen. Our dear Lord, we pray that thy spirit would seal thy word to our hearts and help us, Lord, to live in the reality of all that we confess to believe. For Jesus' sake, amen.